Welcome to Quad Life. I'm your host, Brian Bell. On today's show, Chris Marks. Chris grew up a commercial fisherman on the British Columbia coast. From Washington to Alaska, he worked on the water for over 20 years of his life. Chris's life took him from the BC coast to the South Pacific, to working ski hills and rolling sushi. Before his injury at 31, Chris had two children and was married and divorced. Amongst his adventures through his life, Chris also volunteered as a fireman and took on cooking school. Six months out of school, Chris suffered a C5 spinal injury. Since that time, Chris's life has focused on advocacy, enjoyment, and contribution. Welcome to Quad Life. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a super honor to be here. You've got quite a schemed uh, lineup of guests I've seen in the past. So, I uh, I have a burning question for you. What's the uh, deal with the pipe? With the witch? Were you, with your pipe, are you a purveyor of fine tobaccos? Um, yeah, I like a little bit of organic medicinal. I kind of grow my own. So it's not finding what you need out there with the government market and stuff. So I started going craft, growing my own. Are you, uh, are you smoking uh, like regular tobacco in there ever? No, I, I've been battling smoking for like since pre-injury for over 25 years and quit on and off a few times up to a year and a half. Champak, Zyban, you name it. I switched to vape, so I've been vaping to manage the nicotine addiction the last few years, which I got to quit that too. Like it's just less bad, but it's still getting me. So vaping and smoking pot, neither of them are really great for quadriplegics, but. Well, you're kind of, you look like the old sailor and uh, the pipe is, the pipe seemed kind of fitting. Right, yeah, yeah. Actually, I do have. One of those old cob pipes, exactly like that. Yeah, like the zigzag guy. It's pretty funny. Right on. So you live in Victoria now, and or did you grow up there? I'm born and raised on the island. I was born in Campbell River, and um, spent 15 years in the next town north of Sayward. It's an old uh, logging town, about 1,200 people in its heyday. Um, I think it's historically the largest live-in logging camp in BC. They had bunkhouses with like 400 guys there back in the 60s, 70s. Anyways, I was a fisherman in a logging town and uh, there were about 15 years and then up and down the island, Courtney, Nanaimo, um, Campbell River. Uh, I spent a... Uh, you ever get up to Cayucat Sound? Oh yeah. Yeah, I've, I grew up commercial fishing from the age of six to, to probably 26 with my grandparents on the boat. You know, Campbell on the boat every summer. School would finish and we get on the boat and then tie and head up to fishing out of uh, Commando Sound, Rupert, Dixon Entrance. So I grew up all on the coast. My first summer land, I was 19 years old. I took a summer off and stayed home. And then the next one was 26. But And then by then it had gone beyond just salmon fishing in the summer to halibut, herring, cod, uh, live rockfish, and then tuna offshore and off Hawaii. And then uh, one trip down to South Pacific and, and uh, over the Dateline. And, and that was on a on one boat or you bounced around to different oh, one boat i fished on a boat called the tequila it was a family boat 
was born into a football building family and 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 fishing family conceived at the dock actually apparently i know too much about that story apparently my mom but um at my grandpa's shipyard in Cam river grew up there and then fishing on the boats like i say every part of the coast every little nook and cranny from here to alaska around Haida Gwaii, through the ditch um summers in masset um we'd go to uh the park in south moresby um what they call anthony island or probably called skangwai and hot spring island and stuff as fishermen and later on i left that career and went to culinary school and then i got a job on bc's oldest tall ship and we were doing eco tours into the great bear rainforest and uh i had a guai you know during the migration routes the great bear rainforest during the salmon migration routes when the bears are coming down and then the uh Haida Gwaii transit over for the uh, humpback whale migration and stuff and take guests into the the park there, the United Nations Heritage Site on the southern tip, which is one of the one of the last three the dialects of Haida that was wiped out uh, from smallpox from Fort Victoria in about 1870. So uh, yeah, I, I grew up fishing and then got to go back later uh, with this lens of this, you know, only Canada's premier uh, ecotourism. Um, operators, and so I really got appreciation for the coast. Um, so you and I have Neil Shearer in common, correct. Captain Neil. Yeah, he was one of my uh, he was a relief captain on the Maple Leaf for some of the trips, and we uh became really close. And actually, when I was injured, he, he mentioned you to me, he said you should meet up with this Brian Bell fellow, he's also had an injury and, and done really well in life. And uh, I didn't know I didn't know you back then at all, but yeah. Well, that's cool. Uh, it just shows how uh, what a small world we live in, eh? Yeah. You told me yeah. once you had, uh, you had the well. You told me just now too. You had a business degree, and you got a business degree with a hippie heart. What does that mean? Well, so I found myself with a spinal injury at thirty-one. I was, uh, like I say, I was working at a first out of culinary school. Got a Got a job at a sushi bar um, because I'd been my passion when I was out, uh, you know, fishing and stuff and making on the boat and uh, French culinary school. But I was working at a sushi bar in the moonlighting on the maple leaf, and then I had a spinal injury. I woke up in Vancouver General Hospital and laying on the floor doing physio for a couple of years, figuring out what I'm going to do now. I figured I, you know, I got to go to school. I got to make a living somehow and make myself useful with my mind or my mouth because I can't do it with my hands anymore. I can't jump on a boat or pick up a hammer or, or jump in the kitchen and all that type of stuff like I had yeah. done before. And so it led me into college, into business school, and I became a professional student for pretty much a decade and did a degree and a half and ended up finally finishing a marketing degree just so I, you know, as, as my dad would say, get the wallpaper, something to put on the wall. Yeah. And, um, and you know, that was a safe place to be and it helped. Um, did, did that give you a, 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 a big sense of pride? Well, accomplishment, yeah. And I just, you know, stuck through it. I, um, I started off, you know, the fire under my ass with spring, summer, winter, fall, spring, summer, winter, fall, two, three courses. And then I started taking summers off and going to Burning Man and, and having some more fun and trying to enjoy it. Cause after spinal injury, I figured, you know, things can change pretty quick. So I'm going to try and squeeze every last drop of, of uh, joy there is out of this this ride and, and uh, have some experiences. 
So Burning Man, you went down there. That must have been fun. Absolutely. For me at the time, it was like my Everest, right? Because I was like, I grew up fishing. I didn't grow up camping. So now I'm going to go camping with a disability, but in the desert, in the, the largest desert in North America in the hottest time of year. And to me, it's like, like I'd done events here and stuff and camping on the riverside and, and the train is shit, man. Like you need a, you need an adaptive chair and, and then your all trained chair doesn't fit in your vehicle. So, so it's, it's, a, it's a challenging, right? So I saw this big flat desert. I'm like, rip around anywhere there. And, uh, fell in with the local community on the island here. It was, it was a, it was a game changer. It kind of actually really saved my life in some ways because, you know, GF teaches you how to live, but this kind of gave me a life worth living, you know, a little more to it. It's a long story, but, um, yeah, if I went to Burning Man in 2012, I, before that I was practicing, like I went to hot yoga and sat there for an hour to see if I'd take the heat and sweat and see how I'd handle that. And I was doing all sorts of things to prep and way over, Correcting. So I come from the marine background, so I had custom front forks built for my uh, tires and special tires I thought I'd need, and all this extra get up that I, I turned out I didn't really need. Actually, just I went back there in 12, 2012 and twenty thirteen. In twenty thirteen, I just kept the street tires on, and and the, the desert's hard pack most of the playa. It's like like you can rip along at full speed. There's a few dunes, but you can avoid them. So yeah, it's quite freeing and. Uh, a community like no other and it's not like a big well whatever you're thinking about burning man unless you've been it, it's it's a different animal like it's the largest leave no trace event in the world can't buy or sell anything in there once you get in it's all free except for coffee or tea and uh it's a, it's a pretty interesting experiment in society it's been like 30 years or something. you'd recommend it for uh for any anybody who's uh got the cojones to go down and give it a shot it's it's like I think time make time you know one of the hundred greatest sites of civilization. It's it's a, it's a definite bucket list thing. You know this is the first year in its history it's taken off like everything with COVID. But there's a local community here in BC. Um, BC is one of the few places that has two regionals. So there's one on the island and there's one on the mainland. Um, used to be in Squamish, and that went up to uh, Shambhala. Merritt. No, it's not Shambhala. It's older than Shambhala. Well, I mean not. I mean, Burning Man is, but the, uh, no, Bird of the Forest is the, uh, the oh. mainland and, and uh, Otherworld is the island one. Um, and Otherworld last year, we had a thousand people, a four day multi arts event. So. So you sound like you're, uh, you're big into uh, events and plan, um, organization. It, well, trying to figure out a new way to be after spinal injury, I, I I've, I've found myself volunteering. I just, I tried everything. When I was at GF, I threw myself into everything from, you know, sexual health to water pool therapy to you name it, art therapy and making t-shirts. And then I went to school, I tried everything. I went to student society and board of governors and, and you find out what you're good at, find out what you're not good at. Just try everything. And so yeah, I get back to the, the, the hippie heart thing. I end up volunteering with this arts community and, and getting a chance to step into leadership positions I would never had a chance to step into otherwise and and have responsibilities and, and successes and failures that I would never have had before. So it was a great um, catalyst and a great place to, to try new things. And and um, like I grew up on the coast. I was the guy that would have a no plastic overboard policy and stuff. And so yeah, business school. Um, it was quite an interesting experience. And I'm like, you know, you guys need to 
that ethics should be day one, not an optional third year program. And, and there's, there's some bigger things at play um, with the business world that we're seeing. So I, I end up being somewhat of a heretic in business school, but uh, um, I think it plays out like the business case for say something like renewable energy is cheaper than fossil fuels. It's not an argument about should you or could you, it's just, it's bottom line is it's better and it's cheaper and it's, it's, it's winning on a pure business sense, doesn't matter what the government does. So just things like that, like it's a useful tool, it's a vehicle. So that's why I went to school is to figure out kind of how the world works and try and use that to do my part to make it, you know, a better place if I can. You actually had an experience that uh, a lot of quads fear. You found yourself without any care or help after one of your care workers abandoned you at a festival. Can you tell them? Two of them walked out on Thursday morning and it was on a, we were back a few years ago, uh, was going pretty hard. We'd go to base coast, go to the mainland for two weeks, go early, stay late, go to the nearest town and kind of like a fishing trip. You go to the pool, have a swim, go to the laundromat, wash your clothes, restock at the grocery store and then head into the next event early. And uh, just like instead of going back and forth on the ferry and it seemed, you know, um, efficient. And it was my second or third year doing that, but this was a new kind of caregiver and friend I went with. And it just got stressful and they'd had enough. And I don't blame them. They came Thursday morning respectfully and they said, you know, we, we're, we're out of here. We gotta go. We've talked to your friends and you're okay, but um, we can't do this. I'm like, yeah, no, that's okay. But then I found myself sitting there going, Jesus, what kind of an asshole am I? What has happened here? And uh, sitting there in my little trailer and then, um, you know, my friends were checking on me. I'm like, well, just give me my phone. And, and actually my phone rang and somebody from the island was looking to get over. And I said, well, would you, would you help me with care? And they said, yeah. So by midnight that night, somebody was there. And I just ended up being the best weekend ever. And uh, it gave me a lot of time to reflect and, and realize that, like, like as quadriplegic, you have to ask and accept help. That's part of the key of survival. But there's a, you can't, not everybody can do everything. And you got to, you got to be careful how much you ask. and. Um, and you know people can only wear so many hats and they can't be your electrician and your support worker and your um you know artistic decorator and your you know all hip stuff it's just and to do those things whether it's burning man or camping or anything takes a lot to do that and take care of yourself let alone take care of yourself and somebody else so it just taught me how to build teams better and um and find you know the people that want to help setting up lights and stuff it doesn't have to you don't have to try and demand that out of everybody. So it's really taught me to, you know, everybody has their strengths. Every worker, some are better, others, things than others. And, and to work with that, and it's more like a symphony than trying to just, you know, make it, it's, like, it's not the fish boat anymore, you know? Yeah. When things like that have happened to me, I really struggle with the idea that I'm, that I'm the problem. Is, do you ever have that experience? Well, absolutely. Like I'm the only locus of control. So it stops and ends here. And so if, if, uh, you know, I kept, I use a cooking analogy, like there's two chefs, there's like, uh, um, Ramsey, you know, Gordon Ramsey's yelling at all these people and there's Mario Batali and they're both superstar chefs. Mario Batali is kind of a Italian guy laid back, chill, his kitchen's kind of calm, but it's a well-oiled machine. So I think, and I'm just paraphrasing, but generally somebody interviewed him once and they said, well, you know, why are you yelling like, like Gordon Ramsay? So generally, like if you're 
getting mad or you haven't prepared your people well enough if they're if they're not able to afford like as as a leader whether you're whether you're on a fish boat or whether you're in a kitchen or wherever like if you don't prepare your people well enough then you can't ask things of them and uh so it's 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 comes back it's all stems back to me i'm the only thing that i can control so i look at where i've gone wrong what i what i can do better and um because the only thing i can control how right? would so, you do it again oh just not try to do so much with like i you know i got a big imagination i got lots of plans sometimes and and uh i've learned to uh since then break it up and, and, you know, attract people and say, Hey, you know, a group of people, do you want to work on this part of the project or do you want to work on this part? And, and, um, yeah, just a little more careful and not, um, so ambitious maybe. <laughs> I, uh, I have a piece of property, uh, in the caribou here and I'm trying to figure out how to attract people to, to help me build something there. Like I, I want to build some trails and camping type area where it, it's kind of like a nature experience. And I don't know if that's a kind of thing that you uh, are focused on too, is doing those types of things or if you're still. Absolutely. No, that's awesome. And like, yeah, like find your your people, right? Like with that volunteer organization that you know, when I was able to help out there, and we got to a thousand people event, all volunteer run. It's and then I go back to business school, and you look at say Dan Pink and the science of motivation. It's not like money. Money is like the worst motivator, especially the more complex task, the worse outcomes you get when money is the main motivator. Wall Street's a prime example. Right. And so what they found in these right wing think tanks, they found this crazy hippie type stuff that to get like motivation and buy in and intrinsic motivation from people where they'll go extra is to provide um, the conditions of uh, autonomy, mastery and purpose. So they have some self direction. They can have a bit of autonomy of what they're doing. They have mastery. They could learn a skill or do something that, you know, they want to do and purpose. Why? Because it matters to them because it makes a difference or because it helps. And if you can provide those conditions for people, then they're, they, they make it their own and they will, you, you can't pay people to do what they'll do. They'll volunteer and work day and night. And um, so, yeah, like it's a delicate balance, but find those things. And I kind of try and live and breathe that, like try to micromanage people that prepare them with what they're going to need to do stuff and uh, prepare them for success. And, I guess the analogy they use was why does somebody practice you know playing guitar? It makes no economic sense, but the autonomy they can do it when they want, mastery, you know, why they can get better in purpose, or maybe they love music. And it makes no economic sense that they're all Saturday or Sunday playing away on a guitar, but it's deeply rewarding, right? So those types of things. So if you find people with those same values and uh, you make a place they can do it and get better at it and live their purpose, um, you'll 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 build wherever you want to build so that's that's empowerment and empowerment i guess really can translate into a lot of things in our lives yeah well like i can't do anything myself like i can't get in or out of bed i 
try, but I, you know, crazy spasticity and stuff. So I rely on people every day. And so and I have a bit of a brain injury. So I have a bit of a flashpoint, a bit of a, a, a damage to the emotional governor. So the damage is relationships. So yeah, learning about myself, learning, you know, anything from meditation to routine. I was always a, against routine, but it's so important to have, you know, so you can find your things. You're not going crazy looking for it. And, and a bit of organization I'm finding uh, is my new uh, kind of armor against chaos. Yeah. The last time we spoke, you said you had a garden and some chickens. What's your harvest been like this year? That's my COVID project come March. Um, a friend started some tomato plants early and they, they're still tomatoing out there. They're still little orange pear tomatoes and big kind of beefsteaks and a couple little cherry tomatoes. There's some pepper plants just coming on now that another friend dropped off. Um, peas and, and uh, uh, beans are all done, of course. There's a whole bunch of carrots I gotta dig up and uh, there's uh, a couple of potatoes and some beets. I'm excited to go dig up here in the next few weeks. Um, so there's a few things out there and uh, we planted some raspberries that are actually fruiting pretty well. So every day I go out and there's a half dozen or a dozen just at pickable height, just below the armrest. So, you're, so eat, you're eating from your garden on a daily basis. Yeah, I got eggs. I got three chickens, but I can't even keep up with the eggs. So I got a friend come by to pick up a dozen today and I throw the five bucks in the jar and it pays for the chickens feed plus them some. So it's, it's a fun hobby and um, I'm not much for pets. I, I love animals, but I don't want to worry about having to pick up or run over or something. But you, you know, you give them the pellets and they give you eggs and they're, they're pretty happy. And uh, I got it. They're pretty spoiled back there. So um, kind of little urban mini farm and I'm just making home a place I want to be, you know, and, and uh, this whole COVID thing was kind of the impetus because we're home anyway. So, yeah. Are you a canner? I have, I have been in the past I'm, and I got most of the parts here, but I'm not organized yet. There's still so many moving pieces. I just next year. Yeah, I find gardening uh, extremely uh, therapeutic. What about Absolutely. you? Yeah. And you were telling me a little bit about uh, renewable energy uh, that you're into. Yeah, I mean, it's a no-brainer, right? Like, uh, I'm not going to go on about climate crisis and all that type of stuff. We've all heard about that. But even on my Facebook, I don't – there's a couple things I'll never – like the – the uh, Cheeto Emperor south of the border, I don't give him any replay. And, you know, the doom and gloom of climate, I focus on solutions and what's been happening that, like, renewables are, are cheaper in pretty much every market on Earth and, and they're getting better. They're undercutting oil to the point of, um, like, Canadian funds, any, any retirement funds paid to the oil and gas sector are going to be uh, zero. They're going to be worth nothing and not in like 50 years like within a decade or less like it's it's really exceptional china just came out and did a seismic shift and said they're going 100 percent renewable by 2060 so that's 40 years and that the, the scale and size of that is, is magnitude is never even going to imagine 
but like China doesn't mess around. So it, it's, it's that, and just, you look at it, like it, it, the business case is over. I won't go on about it. I got a blog. I went on about it for a year and a half last year and the pace of technology and the efficiencies, it's just, that's a no brainer. So will it happen in time that we need for you know, carbon reduction and stuff? I don't know. I don't know, but the business case is there. Um, could I, could I post your blog there or something to? Oh God, it's it's really. Where do I find it? A, a placeholder for notes, and it hasn't been updated in a year. Um, you can though because it's solid. They're good jumping off points, but there's so much has happened since then. They haven't even updated it in a year and a half. But it was just kind of documenting the different places that you know you can look at from the business case, and it's pretty undeniable. You can check out. Tony Siva's work on um, solar power and yeah, the, the, like there's in the media and government people arguing about it, but business and, and investment, the money that only cares about money is already moved away from oil and gas at, at a accelerating rate. If you look around, you'll see what I mean. Oh yeah, I, I, I have no, uh, no question, question in my mind about that one. I, I think oil and gas is is well maybe not gas but I think gas is going to last a while but oil's gone gonzo just, just the business case and and so like I use a power chair so I've been keenly interested in battery technology since you know before injury but especially with injury because I'm limited by you know when I went to Burning Man I three sets of batteries and Anderson quick connects and we'd swap out, I'd go back to camp and swap out an entire new set of two new batteries that it's not charging. So I go back out and get across the playa. Like those are my solutions that I, I had made and uh, like, like six full sets of batteries and teach caregivers how to swap them out and, and we modified the system and stuff. But you know, now you can get a front wheel drive with lithium ion that would go that range and, uh, and there's more to come. So, it's you know battery technology is literally quality of life for a lot of us with disabilities and um it all plays in with renewables and storage all type of stuff so to see the seismic shifts in the market is encouraging hopefully that'll trickle down to consumers you know more sooner yeah i've got a a chair from australia it's a big sort of it kind of looks like a an atv it's got those big knobby tires on it and 24 volt and it it's uh it's a tank but it, it doesn't last long enough like i get about 40 minutes out of the battery two 12 volt batteries and i barely get any range out of it no right that's ridiculous no they there's no reason you should get well, you see the guys with the custom-built e-bikes, so get you know 60, 70k out of them and stuff with the downhill mountain bikes that are converted. Um, yeah, it's there. The technology's there. It's I was trying to get custom-made battery packs for the power chair to fit within the space of a Group 24 battery compartment, but they'd only deal with OEMs and stuff like 12 years ago, and it was just frustratingly hard. And, and now I might have a better chance, but I. Not going anywhere anyways right now. Yeah. 
are you thinking of working on any other uh, sustainable ideas? That you, anything going on the side? Um, well, I just do what I can around here, like little bits of stuff. Like, like recycling is a, oh God, open a can of worms. But yeah, recycling is, is it's a feel good thing, right? Like it's just down, it's just downsourcing, outsourcing uh, the responsibility to like 7 billion consumers like here deal with this junk. Uh, if you look up cradle to cradle uh, design, it's designing stuff from the beginning so they're not toxic at the end. So you can take your couch and throw in the garden, it would add nutrients to the soil, not have toxic dyes and stuff. You could like stuff in, in continuous play. So you're not making plastic that gets throughput and ends up on the beaches that where people are cleaning up and stuff like and toxifying the system. Like it's, it's designed. So really to me, like I'm a, I'm a systems guy. I'm like, what's the thin edge of the wedge here is to, is a few hundred manufacturers and governments and mandate, you know, change it at the source. Don't put it out to the consumers. Then, then that comes from the thing like waste equals food. You look at nature's and buy and, and systems there where all the leaves fall down below the, the tree, like it looks like a mess and stuff, but that's, that's actually biological nutrition. So if you make waste, so it's actually, it can be like you make packages and stuff that are, that, that don't just biodegrade, but actually add nutrition. Like anyways, you can look that up, cradle to cradle. It's a thing. It's part of a, uh, a growing movement. It's not new. It's been over a decade or more, but, once you grasp it, it's just like, duh, why are we doing this? You know? It does make a lot of sense for the uh, manufacturer to be responsible to produce a product that's going to be recyclable and will, will, like you say, go cradle to cradle that will stay within the system and keep renewing itself. There's so many places that, yeah, like non-toxic dyes and plastic. There's just so many places. And rather than putting out to consumers, like I, I employ caregivers, right? I want to recycle. Well, not everybody does. So this trash, I'm watching people, there's trash going out, this stuff, the, the box is a mess every time. And it's just, it's this myriad of stuff that we didn't ask for and shouldn't have to be burdened with. Like, like yes, recycle, of course, be responsible for your stuff. Like we leave no trace at our events, but we can do better than that. Like you can stop outsourcing it to the people and get to the, the few producers. You, know? you uh, work for Praxis. What yeah. do you do there? Um, Vancouver Island community liaison. And so th that is, it's just an amazing, amazing job and opportunity. And I was going to school for you know 10 years not knowing what I'm doing, but I'm working with the city of Victoria and I'm working with the transit, you know, BC transit on the advisory council and uh, volunteering and working with Tetra and just kind of putting stuff on board. And, and then Praxis made a move, rebranded, rebranded from the Rick Hansen Institute. And they're like, seriously, um, Praxis means, you know, putting stuff in action and they're really moving and shaking and doing stuff. They have, a uh, goal to be a global leader in spinal cord injury and they're not kidding like it's it's amazing fire hose since i started in february went there in march covid hit and we've all been working from home since but we haven't stopped i've gone to three to four days a week and and just been involved in so many amazing initiatives i i uh boggle some mind to try and encapsulate it in 30 seconds but 
Uh, just today, we're going through these incubate applications where 23 companies have applied and we're going to give them money, pick five of them, give them money and trying to accelerate their, you know, SCI specific kind of game changer ideas and, and get them into products into market and, and ultimately to people that helps them. And so it's just really exciting to see that. Like I, I'm an old cynic, like we've been, us in the spinal cord injury world, we've been offered and promised every thing for decades and, you know, we're still here, so I'm not selling false hope here, but I'm really, really um, encouraged to see the movement in that space and what's going on. There's some exciting stuff, so um, stay tuned because there's lots moving in that space. Is, is that something you can't talk about right now, or no? I just, it's just I don't know where to start. It's just so much. I, I went to a meeting and, and met Doctor. Uh, um, Berger here in Victoria and he's a new physiatrist and and they're starting a neurotransfer clinic. So upper limb mobility for quadriplegics. Like we don't care about walking, your other hands work, at least I would. And uh, so now they're doing that. They they have this nerve transfer that wasn't available 14 years ago where they can, there's the scar right there. They go in and, and take a nerve from a, like a radialis muscle, a radialis muscle, sorry, out of the bicep and wire just the motor nerve parts into the fingers. So sometime in the next six months, two years, it's gonna re-innervate those muscles and I'll be able to pinch these hands, these fingers to a certain point. I don't know how much, but I've read all this, the studies uh, and have access to them and, and went in for the, the uh, screening to say, well, see what it's about because you wanna check things out. And they said, you're a candidate, even 15 years post-injury. So I just did the surgery uh, just two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Um, a surgery in and out. No loss of function, no pain. And apparently it's just going to grow down and, and re-innervate those motor neurons. And uh, I'll be doing some physio. Uh, my first appointment, actually my first full appointment is tomorrow. And then I'll be seeing from there. So it's, to me, experimental surgery, but it was no, no must, no fuss and might work out. So yeah, that's just, and that's not through practice directly, but that's just a spinoff of being in that space that in the last six months, I did something I never thought I would do. And I you know, went in for a nerve transfer surgery. And um, how does this whole process uh, start? You, you felt you qualified to to be eligible to get this nerve transfer? Oh, actually, we were, we were, um, I was helping co-write a study on, on nerve transfer. And, and so there were, you know, as part of the, the practice whole um, consumer engagement and translational knowledge that, that people with lived experience are involved at every step of the way. And so at this meeting, I met this doctor and, and he said, well, you know, would me and another fellow, Sam, would we be interested in being consumer, you know, um, or consumers that were, you know, people with spinal cord injury. So, you know, um, being advisors and, and kind of taking that study and just wording it so that it makes sense and, and, and running it through with the uh, interviewer a few times and then finding a few people to see if they want to do this study. And it was, what do you know about nerve transfer? And then a little bit of the educational component and then, you know, would you consider it? And so doing that study, I learned about it and I thought, well, this is for people aimed at one or two years post injury or, you know, like that before, you know, muscle wasting and stuff. I said, but I'll, I'll just run through the, 
intake with uh, Dr. Berger and Dr. Klaus, just so I can tell other people about it. But when I went and did the electrodiagnostic, they said, no, you're good to go. We can try this on you. And I just thought, well, okay, why not? So it's kind of by fluke. I wasn't really searching out. I was just poking my head in seeing what do they do over here, like, like I tend to do, and, and, and then did the thing. So They don't do a nerve transfer so, for somebody if they're like too far posted. Oh, no, you could go in. They'll do an electrodiagnostic because now it's advanced. Before they weren't, didn't know, but now they do the pretest with the electrodiagnostic and they'll, they'll tell you that there's muscle response there like, and uh, apparently there was. I used to be right-handed before the injury, and uh, but there's so much tone and stuff. I don't. I'm, I'm, I do everything with my left hand now. Um, but when they did the electrodiagnostics, they said the left arm isn't a candidate because there's some peripheral nerve damage, you know, outside the spinal cord. But the right arm was a candidate. I'm like, well, it's my less useful arm, anyways. Let's throw that one in for science. And. Um, yeah, I don't know if the tone all those years or what it is that, that has kept it, but it's a, it's a candidate. And another uh, quad I told us about, they offered him surgery uh, October 20th, and he's 17 years post. So yeah, it's this is a new emerging thing, and it's exciting. And like You could be a candidate. It's worth going and checking out. They're trying to start a clinic here in Victoria, or they are starting a clinic. So just, how, how can we help folks find out about that? and? Uh... Um, Dr. Mike Berger, I'll uh, I'll send you a link if he has one, or, or to his clinic, whatever. And yeah, you can just talk to him, and I'm sure they'll have a process set up. Like I said, I came in this from the back end just accidentally, but um, yeah, it's an absolute thing that's available. Uh, they're not the only ones doing it, but they're kind of on the edge here. So. Sounds really exciting. Yeah, I personally suffer from a lot of chronic pain. Uh, is there any new up-and-coming research on that front that you're aware well, of? Neuropathic pain is, is, is the hot one, right? Because it's so, so ephemeral. Um, yes, but like I say, I'm, I'm still so new to this and there's so much going on. Somebody like John, actually, um, uh, you would uh, you'd probably want to interview him and have him on your show too. Oh, I definitely, um, I definitely want to talk to John. Um, yeah, John Chernesky, because yeah. he'll he'll give you the science. He's he's up on it. He has the the lingo. I'm still I'm still getting my feet wet, and um, I have a basic understanding. But if I try and explain it, I I just I I uh, botch it. So, um, but there's yeah, there's so much happening in every space because practices the care, cure, you know, consumer and and commercialization, and they're firing on all cylinders all the time. There's just a lot, a lot going on. So as I, as I um, like spinal cord uh, simulation survey, it's gonna be coming out Canada wide to try and uh, gauge interest and, and, and kick that uh, off in Canada and, and just all sorts of places like working on cure and until cure, working on care, like how do we reduce UTIs? How do we, uh, reduce and stop pressure source. How do we deal with spasticity and neuropathic pain and, and what's out there? And yeah, so jumping into it um, and having access to that fire hose of, of knowledge, like I say, it's pretty amazing. And I'll be able to distill some and, and uh, send it out. It's really about consumers. Like what, what practice needs to know is what's important to people with spinal cord injury. And then 
they help direct research and funding. So that's, that's my job is to you know, find out what's important and build networks and listen to people. And, uh, you know, COVID's kind of made that interesting, but that's what we're doing. What is your, uh, your funding? Are you able to sustain yourself comfortably and live off what you make? Oh, Brian, I've, I've been on CPP and PWD since the beginning for 14 years and going to school and grants and loans and, and managed to get a place in Victoria that I rent out that helps with the mortgage and, uh, just scraping by, but now, now for the first time ever, uh, I'm I'm not on PWD or PP anymore after six months of practice, and I'm just scraping by. But that's all I need. I mean, I got my garden and stuff. I'm not falling too far behind on bills, and I'm not. I still got bills. Yeah, no, I'm just kind of maintaining. I would probably, I should probably get some roommates down here, but that's a hard one now because when COVID hit, uh, both roommates moved out and then I was again alone for the first time. And that was kind of messed up at the start, but now I've, I've gotten into a flow and I'm quite comfortable like that. So um, Fine. I'm very, very, very fortunate, you know, to be working and have a job and, and trying to contribute and, uh, make the best of it, but that's, you know, turn me into uh, accidental, but, you know, advocate was because I was 31 when I had my injury and then all of a sudden you have a spinal injury and you have to wait two weeks to get a tire change on a wheelchair and haggle with this labyrinth of opaque systems, ministry and, and stuff. And you see, you just go unintentionally become an advocate just to, just to get through that stuff. So, yeah. There's been a lot of talk about uh, universal basic income. Mm -hmm. Are you, you're an advocate for that, I think, as well, aren't you? Well, absolutely. Um, and whatever flavor you have, you know, like a guaranteed minimum income, they're looking at now a Canada disability benefit, I think, is the buzz that is coming out from the throne speech. We don't know what that's going to look like yet, but long overdue. Um, but absolutely, and and so I've done some hard dive into that, and the bottom line is the cost of poverty is more than the cost of a guaranteed minimum income would be, like straight up, and and that uh, income is the great you know the greatest social determinant of health at least other pathways. So can you get a better education, can you get nutrition, you have to stay in a bad job or a bad marriage, that type of stuff, and every every experiment they've done from the Minicum experiment in, in Manitoba years ago, all around the world has shown positive results. People don't stop working. They don't spend it all on booze, like all those, all those kind of myths and those naysayers. And that it, it's literally, yeah, if you can eliminate poverty and then all the myriad of problems that go with that, um, spinoffs for society are, are huge. Spain just uh, said they're going to go with a, form of a UBI and make it a permanent financial instrument. And, um, you know, the old age pension and, and those type of stuff are already forms of that in Canada we already have. So hopefully this disability benefit that they come up with uh, covers those bases and not, you know, doesn't let people slip through the cracks. Give it's not a UBI at all, but it, it quarrels on those principles. 
give people enough money to uh, to live on. To take care of, so you're not surviving, you're not scrambling for survival. Yeah, and then and then yeah, if you got a place and, and you're not scrambling for survival, then you can you can go to school, you can contribute. And and like I'm a big believer in like colleges and and getting people like myself from like you know um, disability and and welfare to volunteering to contributing to working again. Not that that's the be all end all, but to give people a chance to give them like I didn't know what I was doing in school. I knew I needed to get a degree in business. And I knew it was important to me and, and it was kind of that autonomy kind of self-led. So I took me like 10 years and I halfway did an HR degree because I wasn't sure which way I was going. But yeah, that ability to explore and develop and then contribute at a better level um, when I get back into the workforce. So, uh, and, and it's that piece together of CPP and PWD and other programs you can get. That's just a overlapping messy framework for what, you know, a, a guaranteed minimum income could could do, and as long as there was, you know, they recognize the intersection of income and disability, so that people with disabilities don't fall through the cracks. Some extra there, but yeah, absolutely. Not having to put people at a poverty line incomes, so you're scrambling and you're too busy to to make good decisions and get new good nutrition or get a job, and more likely to you know have substance issues because you're so busy struggling. So I'm a firm believer in that as uh, to reduce inequality. Do you have an aha disability moment? Oh goodness, yes. Well, many, but I guess my, it came back at GF Strong because when I was first injured, I was, you know, I'm gonna walk out of there, I'm gonna hit the rehab hard, I'm gonna have all the tools and knowledge and pretty motivated. And, and you know, after a few months that wasn't happening and you had to come to that realization and uh, there was, a, there was a complex of things. I had a roommate that gave me some counseling and I had a, um, some nurses that gave me the old copy of Murder Ball when I was still at General Hospital, Vancouver General Hospital before I went to GF. And I said, I think you're ready for this. And I watched that and that was kind of you know inspiring. And then that was the same year Sam Sullivan just got elected mayor of Vancouver and he was a quadriplegic guy and spoke three languages or more and went to Turin Italy to bring the flag back for the Olympics. And I went and saw him speak when I was been two months of my injury and I was like you can be quadriplegic and be mayor of Vancouver and play murder ball I'm like well that just took away my excuses I'm like well I had a pretty full and amazing life before my injury and so I'm I'm not gonna let spinal injury get in the way of that I'm gonna you know set a high bar for myself and have an amazing life after injury so that was an aha I was like okay this, this thing's gonna be different but um it can be good still it'd be amazing actually it really can be amazing and it's really just the barriers we put in front of ourselves isn't it well and then i get like with praxis and just like general reflecting on stuff like let's just back up a step and look at it like a hundred years ago the lifespan of somebody with a spinal injury was minutes or hours you know maybe days and a serious spinal injury you just you did not live it was an injury not to be treated and then the first veterans hospital i think after world war ii was where they had a ward and now people with spinal injuries that you can, you can, what can't you do? You can go climb mountains, go to Brain Man, you'll go sailing, go surfing, you can you do anything. So we're, we're literally living on the edge of human experience because we didn't get to live the last hundred years. So dealing with dysreflexia, where they're dealing with sexuality, where they're dealing with working, where they're dealing with driving, like people have disabilities, but this is probably one of the most survivable injuries 
that a human can, the most serious survivable injuries that a human can have. So, and there, there is no guidebook because we're writing it, right? And that's why peer knowledge is, or peer support is so important because there's hundreds or thousands of years of collective knowledge there uh, when you get a peer group together um, versus, you know, one doctor or one rehab place or whatever. So, and, and we don't have guidebooks because we're literally making it up as we go. Like, there, you know, first it was paraplegics and then standards of care got better. Now those quads are out in the world and equipment's better and interventions are getting better. And, and so standards have to upgrade, you know, to universal design and on and on. And so I'm always aware of that. I'm like, why does this seem so hard? Why does it seem like there's no guidebook? I'm like, oh, right, because we're writing it right now. And we're following the steps of like you and, and Walt and these amazing people and uh, people who've, you know, Brad Jacobson and people who just laid down these pathways and we were just kind of, I was just following behind trying to make a little more elbow room for the next guy behind me, you know? Yeah, th th and that's what it is. Just keep passing, passing the torch down to the next, the next bunch. For what in life do you feel most grateful for? Oh man, community, this amazing community that I've found myself in and developed and people at my house here helping right now and, and um, yeah, and life itself, like developing that kind of attitude of gratitude because Jesus, you know, any of us has a myriad of stuff and challenges and pain and stuff to, to deal with. And uh, yeah, I'm thankful for, for people and for the help because I need it and I'm lucky to have it. And when you don't, there are those times when you, you know, things go sideways, you realize how important that is. And so I'm thankful for people and, uh, you know, having a job and health, just general. You have life. a couple of kids. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I have two children. They're, they're adults now. They're 21 and 26. They're living in Vancouver. My son's a, my daughter's in Vancouver. Worked at the airport and she's going to school again now. Uh, I believe for Carrie. And uh, my son, third year carpenter, uh, here at a high school, really capable. Um, too, too busy and too cool to work for me, work with me. But uh, yeah, so they're adults now. So I started young. So, and that, you know, one of the most amazing things. You're a proud pop. Absolutely. Very fortunate, yeah. And they're good people. And I didn't, you know, when I was young, I wasn't planning on having kids young. And I thought, well, this is a upset in my life. And then now, spinal injury, I got, you know, a young man, he, when he, he lived here for five years, and he, it helped me change my front wheels and put new bearings in when they, you know, exploded and stuff. And yeah, it's, it's, it's quite an amazing experience to see them become, you know, functional, well-adjusted humans out there uh, still killing it in life. So. That's awesome. And my daughter, yeah, she's in Vancouver. I don't see her as much, but I'm, I'm trying to reach out to her more because they were 12 and 6 when the injury happened, and, um, you know, life is life. Their mom was off island. And yeah. It's tough. It, I don't see anybody or talk to anybody that doesn't go unscathed by the experience well yeah it's what my lawyer call it catastrophic injury 
And uh, like, okay, when I was injured in 2005, uh, my spine surgeon said that we had the highest rate of spine cord injury per capita in North America. So nobody breaks their necks or backs more than us. And, um, you know, number one is vehicle and is closely followed by extreme sports. He said during downhill mountain biking season alone, they do six spine fracture operations a week. If my memory is correct, was the way they said it. And so now going back to practice, the average age was 31. It was C5, it's motor vehicle. Now the average age is in the 50s and it's falls because the baby boomer demographic is going through. So the, it's spinal injuries later in life and um, incomplete uh, quadriplegia is uh, number one, just 15 years later, that's the, that's the demographic shift. So um, that's where we are in the world. So we're really lucky to uh, have this kind of center of, of research and expertise, you know, um, by default, you know, because uh, I guess they get a lot of practice, but so that's a little interesting one I found, like, the most people don't know. Um, and uh, I think we're closely followed by Aspen, Colorado, so it kind of gives you the idea of the demographics. Um, and like I say, they'd say it used to be a young person's injury, but now changing demographics, that's not the case anymore. I was 37, 38 when I hurt myself. Okay, yeah, I was 31. I, uh, I was one of the older guys. Most of the guys that I went through rehab were at least 10 years younger than me. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah, because it was like the risk takers and that, what have you. But that's not the numbers now, which was surprising to me. But it's, um, it is what it is, right? So, yeah, any way we can reduce that, help deal with the after effects, the secondary complications, and yeah, like it's it's personally meaningful. <laughs> it's 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 meaningful to contribute, and um, and it's hopeful. Like there's no cure yet, but goodness, can you you know if you can take care of bladder, bowel, and skin, and and yourself, and get the basics, you can have an amazing life. Like, do you have any daily habits that you would like to share? that have made a significant impact in your life? Yeah, a friend that had dealt with a lot of trauma and stuff taught me, and it seemed cheesy at the time, but it's actually, there's neuroscience behind it and, you know, developing that attitude of gratitude, but it was simple. Like in the morning, think of three things that you're grateful for and then do it again the next day, but that could be three different things. And then add in three people and then three different ones the next day and force yourself to do that. And, and um, I don't do it nearly enough, but when I find myself getting revved up, I try to catch myself up and say, hey, wait, 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 and develop the attitude of gratitude. It rewires the brain for resilience and neuroplasticity rather than rewiring it for doom and gloom and stress. And it's part of an overall coping strategy. And uh, there's so much to be grateful for, you know, even though, even though there's challenges. So, that's that's helped me because I I can go pretty you know into pretty dark places so that's kind of my part of one of my you know personal things so if that works for other people I I, I know it'll work if you, if you spend time doing the habit it, you know the brains will rewire you can and um, set yourself up for success. So your words of wisdom to, to leave us with. 
Oh, golly. I didn't know that question was coming. Um, live life. Enjoy it. Um, say yes to things. And uh, so Bernie Man, safety third. What did Bonnie Henry say? Be kind, calm, and safe. So she'll have a safety third too. But yeah, try to say yes to experiences and uh, take care of the basics. You know, fire, balance, skin. Because if you do that, you can uh, do anything. Thank you very much, Chris, for uh, taking the time to talk to me and uh, share your yourself a little bit with the world out there. Oh, Brian, it's an honor, and I don't know how much I rambled and probably shouldn't have smoked a joint for the interview, but uh, it's, it's just an honor to, um, to talk to you and, and be on that podcast list with so many other amazing people that I look up to and have learned from over the years. And I look forward to, uh, thank you for doing this. I, I appreciate you stepping up and making this happen. This is awesome. Well, thank you so much. I, when I talk to you, I realize we're probably cut from the same cloth when you the things you talk about and your interests and everything else run very parallel to mine yeah that's awesome it's yeah i could talk more on that stuff so we'll do that again mm -hmm. offline someday we'll do it again thank you brian take care thanks again to chris marks for joining us on the program for more information about praxis please visit praxis institute Org. We'll post a link to Chris's blog on the Quad Life Facebook page. Well, that's it for the show. Don't forget, if you shit your pants, just get back out there. <laughs>